So Reverend Morgan Jones was a parish priest in England at the turn of the 18th century, and he's a bit of a character. I'd like to tell you a little bit about Father Jones. Uh, Father Jones was a penny-pinching miser. He hated to spend money. For 43 years, Father Joe wore the same jacket. If he got a lot of stains on it, he would just turn it inside out and wear it for another decade or two. If he got holes in it, he'd patch it up, you know, that sort of thing. He would do anything that he could to avoid buying a new jacket. When the brim of his hat disintegrated and fell off, he didn't want to spend any money to fix it, and so he found a scarecrow wearing a hat and was able to, he felt no shame in borrowing the brim of of the scarecrow's hat and he swapped that out onto his own. He only owned one shirt. Uh, You might be thankful that this isn't isn't me because when he was washing his shirt, he would wander around the parish uh, with no shirt on. Kind of a disturbing priest, we might say. The only time that Father Jones cooked was on Sunday afternoons. And the only thing that he would cook for himself, not so bad, bread and bacon. All right, cool, nice. But here's the funny thing. Whenever he ran out of food, he would take it upon himself at that moment to go and uh, pay his parishioners a visit. And it always seemed to happen to uh, coincide with dinner time. Uh, (laughs) And the townspeople, they were routinely annoyed by Father Jones. Well, in 1824, uh, Morgan Jones retired And this might come as a shocker to you, but no one in the village wanted to put him up uh, for free uh, for the rest of his days. Uh, And so, but thankfully, he found some distant relatives in Wales who he was able to go and and mooch off of for a few more years. And eventually, Father Jones passed away after three years of living with his distant relatives. Now, you can imagine that these relatives of his were very surprised when they received news that Father Jones had left to them 18,000 pounds of of British currency, which in today's standards would amount to $2 million. Like, that's pretty amazing, right? So this penny-pinching priest turned out to have this prophetic voice to him. This wild character sort of, uh, he he became a blessing to those uh, around him and after him. Uh, Charles Dickens was actually inspired by Father Jones and based one of his characters in a novel after him. But this man, he had the lifestyle very much of a prophet, and he reminded those around him not to treasure things in heaven, uh, but instead to give generously uh, to loved ones, to others. Well, we are in the season of Advent right now, and this is a rather uncomfortable season. It's a season of, of waiting in the dark. It's a season of asking God, where are you? of looking up into the stars and not necessarily hearing an answer in return. This is a season of wandering in the wilderness, which is a disorienting place to be. Oftentimes we're looking at the ground, we're kind of swiping our feet along the dirt, looking for a path to emerge, and it's not always easy to see one. The season of Advent is a season of lament, a season of sorrow, a season of looking within oneself, searching for answers, looking without ourselves and looking for answers there. Now, typically, the American church isn't a big fan of Advent. In fact, I've been chatting with some of you before the service about that. I was, I was chatting with one, with one pastor, and he said, this is usually the time in which you start cranking out the Christmas carols. You know, even here in the American church, we really like to reach forward and grab that warm, fuzzy blanket of Christmas and try to pull it back over ourselves until the dark days of Advent are all gone. But meanwhile... The historic church practices the season of Advent. 
And I realize that for many of us, myself included, this kind of feels like a double life. You know, I'm, I, I, I don't pretend to be uh, ignorant of that. You see, outside of these walls, we try to look for opportunities to brighten these dark days. Our own family, we've hung up our Christmas tree. There's lights on our house. There's a big, obnoxious, wooden uh, Santa Claus in front of my house right now. Uh, you know, we're, we're joining in it. But at the same time, it's our conviction that within the walls of the church, the, we come here, it's our conviction, as the bride of Christ, as a part of her prophetic witness, to stand alongside those who are in the darkness. And yes, we say the darkness is real. It's very real, in fact. But Christ is with you. Christ is with you. And it's our call as believers to carry that light into the darkness. So there's no doubt that these are dark times in our world as well. Just last Sunday, seven days ago, in a small West African country, jihadists killed 14 people in a small evangelical church. And even just a few blocks north of here, on that same day, Sunday, a man took the lives of all those in his household as well as his own. You see, the church needs Advent because it forces us to look at these things It forces us to stand alongside the prophets, to turn our gaze upward and ask God, where are you? Oh Lord, that you would tear open the heavens and come down. Well, today the black sky begins to tear a little bit. Today we get a little bit of glimmer of light. Today God sends to us a man with a weird coat who eats funny food, a man with a strange and bizarre prophetic voice, And he has some challenging words for us, but they're words of hope, words of peace, words of wholeness for us. So John the Baptist, he's not an easy man to like. This isn't someone who you would want to really come and invite over for dinner sometime. You you probably wouldn't want him setting foot in your house. You know, John the Baptist, his default face, like his resting face, is probably a scowl with crazy eyes, you know, just glaring into your soul. Like, and, and I would imagine that that camel's hair, that's, that's got to have a real strong uh, funk to it, you know? It's not something you'd want to get close to. And, and John, he's not someone who belongs in our Advent uh, sort of uh, practices either. We don't put John the Baptist in our nativity scenes, you know? Like, he'd probably be busy trying to baptize the shepherds, or he'd be looking at the wise men being like, what's your motive? Why are you here? Who told you about this? You know, and we, don't, we also don't want John writing our uh, Christmas cards for us. Merry Christmas, you brood of vipers. You know, that's, that's not a very lovely thing to do this year. So he's an offensive man, and he's got an offensive message to him. And yet here he is, standing in the dark wilderness of Advent. And I would say that he is exactly what we need today. John the Baptist stands full of the Holy Spirit like a beam of a spotlight, just shooting upward, rupturing the night sky. And his voice, although jarring, is at the same time pure and beautiful and full of power and authority. And his words are for you today. They're for all of us. So how might this strange man standing in the wilderness speak to the wilderness of today's world? I think he's got three words for us today. So first he gives us a word of preparation. He says, get ready. For a king is coming. His kingdom is about to come. Come, get ready. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. The kingdom of heaven is at hand, says John. This is good news. 
So many of you know that I used to teach in a middle school. Uh, plenty of stories from those uh, fun, interesting days. Uh, but it was always super nerve-wracking when I knew that the principal was going to come and sit in my class and judge me. And I'm, I'm kidding. The school that I used to work, the, the principal was very kind. But it was still very nerve-wracking for me. And leading up to this, I would be busy cleaning the room, you know, making sure that all the graffiti was wiped off the desks, you know, making sure that that, 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 that like, vision poster that the, that the teachers get, you know, was displayed prominently in the classroom. You know, I, I want the principal to know I'm aligned with the values of the school. I'd review my lesson plan like over and over and over, make sure that I could execute it perfectly on that day because I wanted to receive perfect remarks from the principal. You know, I wanted to please her. I wanted to make sure that she was satisfied with my work. But what if I was an awful teacher? Like what if I was a scoundrel of a teacher, right? Like what if I never took out the trash? What if when a kid broke the chairs, like I just kind of left it that way and didn't really report it? You know, what if I let the kids just go to town with their graffiti all over the place? And what if I ignored the curriculum? What if instead I just focused, or I forced the kids to, I don't know, make, make fidget spinners or something that I would then go and sell on the black market? I don't know. Like, like that'd be awful, right? If that was, but if that was the case, who would want the principal to come? Who would want the principal to come if that's the way the kids were being treated? The kids would. They're the ones who'd want the principal to come, right? They'd want this guy, they'd want this rascal to be kicked out of that school in no time. Well, in a similar way, the Jews in the first century, they were desperate for justice. They wanted the authority to come into the room. They were tired of being oppressed by the Romans. They were being taxed into oblivion. And they, they wanted the voice, or anytime they voiced opposition, the army would come and just push them back into their place. But in a way, they're also kind of like the teacher. They're also taking a little bit of ownership of the situation of their day as well. Like the Jews, they wanted to prepare their own lives. They wanted to make room. They wanted to make space. Uh, They wanted to change their habits because they wanted to make sure that when the king showed up, there was no barriers there, that he would have no problem in coming to speak to them. And this is why they go out to the wilderness. Not a friendly place to go. But this is why they wanted to go out to the wilderness, so that they could hear the word of God proclaimed afresh. They wanted to get their house in order. They're not afraid to confront the darkness of their own hearts. They're not afraid to confess their sins. They're not afraid to be washed clean in the waters of baptism because they want the spiritual roads of their souls absolutely ready for the king to come. This is why revival is happening here. Remember a couple weeks ago talking about revival? This is clearly a revival. The word of God is being preached. Baptisms are happening here. Great crowds are coming to witness this because people are desperate for God to come. Well, it's not just those wanting justice who are visiting John either. The beautiful people come. The perfect people come. Those who seem to have all the answers come out as well. Well, the second word is that John has a word to these perfect people. The the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they come to check things out. Now, if if you're a church person, if you've been in church long enough, you know that whenever you hear the Pharisees and the Sadducees come out, you're supposed to boo and hiss these people. We know that they're the bad guys. We know that Jesus doesn't like the Pharisees and all that sort of stuff. But we have to remember that if we had asked any first-century Jew about these guys— they would have had a different reaction. If we were to ask them, who is the most righteous in the land? Who is the most perfect? Who are those who you want to emulate and be like? Well, they would have pointed to the Sadducees and the Pharisees. 
They would have pointed to them and said, man, those guys have it all put together. Their stoles are so well made and beautiful. Their collars are just like perfectly in place, right? We want to be like those. We want to be like those religious elites who follow all the rules, who have all the right answers, check all the right boxes. But John has a different opinion. John sees straight through them. He says, he looks them in the face and he says, you brood of vipers. Who warned you? Why are you here? What is your motive? John says to them. You see, they're coming to see John, not because they themselves recognize any sort of transformation that's supposed to take place. No, they're coming out to visit John because they they just want to look good. They want to have the appearance of righteousness. They want to make sure that that their sash has like all the right badges in it, and they want to collect that John the Baptist badge, you know? Like they're trying to make sure that everything is in order, that they're absolutely pious and perfect to the eye. When it comes to preparing for God, they feel like they're already good. They have all the degrees, they have the, the certificates, the accol- all the accolades, but John sees their hypocrisy. He sees that the, even though they might read their holy Bibles, they don't help the broken. He sees that even though they might love the Anglican Book of Common Prayer, they don't actually love the poor. He sees that they might memorize all the hymns but they don't practice hospitality. In other words, John sees that they're all talk and not all walk. There's no fruit in their lives. And to say the least, John is pretty annoyed by this. He says, you came out here to see a revival. You come out here to let other people know how spiritual you are, to participate in the ritual of all of this. Well, this is nothing, John says. You need to get ready. You need to get ready. And then the third thing that John tells us is about the work of the king. He tells us about the work of the king. John says, I have been baptizing you with water, but one is coming who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit, who will baptize you with fire. This is a a complete baptism. This is a full baptism. He says, my baptism, while significant, is just a sign. But the Messiah, there's something that's entirely different about his baptism. He has the power of the Holy Spirit who will transform you to the core. He will take out your heart of stone and he will give you a heart of flesh. He will take your dry bones and he will put life onto them. He will open your mouth and allow you to sing the praises of God. And he gives this picture of Jesus standing with a pitchfork, with a winnowing fork in his hand. How terrifying is that? So there's a reason why uh, Chicago is called the Windy City. Molly and I, we, we lived there for a couple years. It's a wonderful city, but it's right there on Lake Michigan. And when that wind comes in from the lake and it hits the city, it gets, it gets filtered in through the buildings, and it just becomes this, it's like you're getting blasted by this Arctic chill. It doesn't matter if you're wearing some like windbreaker coat or anything like that. Like It just goes through you. It pierces you to the bone. It's super cold. Like, I'll take a winter here in Minnesota over Chicago any day. We get the sun here in Minnesota. It's lovely winter. But this is similar to how John is describing the work of Jesus. So in those days, a farmer would use wind to separate the wheat from the chaff. And so a farmer would find two buildings or two structures that are kind of close to each other where the wind would come in and just shoot through that little passageway. And what the farmer would do, he he would make a big pile of the newly harvested wheat right in between the two structures. And he would wait for that wind to come. 
And when a strong gust of wind comes, comes through there, he would stick his fork into the wheat and throw it up into the air. Well, the grain is, is fairly heavy. It's fairly smooth. And so like small pebbles, it would just fall to the ground very quickly. But the chaff, on the other hand, the husk of the wheat, the, of the wheat is very thin, and it's kind of like paper. And so as the wind blows through that tunnel, it catches the chaff and blows it away. And the grain is very useful. The grain is very useful for making bread. The chaff is very useful as well. The chaff is very useful for making a big mess. There's nothing you could actually do with the chaff. As you can imagine, because it's made of, of no substance, it's just this papery sort of stuff, it burns very, very, very quickly. Well, December is obviously a busy season for all of us. We're very distracted during this time. There's a lot going on. But the message of Advent is that the judgment of God is indeed coming. So Advent is an invitation that in spite of the, bu- the busyness of everything, to go, to go out to the wilderness, to look into the darkness of not just the world, but the darkness of our own hearts, the darkness that dwells within all of us, you and me. And so we not only ask, where is God, but we also ask questions about ourselves, We ask, where am I preoccupied with my own appearances? Do I fixate on my own titles, my own accomplishments, the networks that I'm involved in, my reputation? Do I look at myself and say, of course God can use me. Like, look at everything that I've been able to do. So the passage today tells us that there are two kinds of people. There are those who are desperate for revival, those who are desperate for justice, who want to see God come now and make all things new. But then there are those who are really impressed by themselves. They think that participating in the the liturgy of their day is is something that um, helps them look better, to gain ahead in life. And John has harsh words for us. He says the axe is at the foot of the tree. And also he says the Messiah is coming with his winnowing fork in hand. And Jesus does come. And he wants to lift you into the air. He wants to toss you up into the air, which is not always a comfortable thing to have your life tossed into the air, but sometimes that's what the Lord does to grab our attention. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, he wants to remove all that is holding you back in your life from experiencing Christ. He wants to take that all away from you. The Lord is looking for those who are hungry for revival, who are hungry for his word, who are hungry to be met by him. He's looking for those who aren't afraid of the darkness, And not just the darkness of the world, but the darkness that's dwelling within us. Because those dark places, this is the great paradox of Christ, those dark places are the perfect places for planting grain. Because by the light of his grace, by the power of his Holy Spirit, those are the places where the Lord Jesus Christ can create life. And that, my friends, is what the world needs. That is what the world needs. The world needs to see life in these dark places. You and I, the church, places where great fruit is able to grow and emerge. Fruit of hope and peace and joy and love. So come. I invite you to come. Come forward today. Come, not by your own merits or your own reputation, but come to lay down your burdens, to lay down the chaff of our souls and experience the fruit of God's kingdom. Let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the words of John the Baptist, that great um, prophet of old. I pray, Lord, that this week as we go about our, our weeks and our lives, 
that these words would soak within us, that we would examine our hearts and look for ways in which we're relying on ourselves instead of you. Lord Jesus Christ, you are building your kingdom. You are inaugurating your kingdom. And I thank you for calling us to be a part of it. May restoration be a place of, of great fruit and growth in the midst of a dark world, Lord. Use us to proclaim your glory. It's in your name and for your glory we pray. Amen.